As we approach the 10th anniversary of me serving as your minister, it's also my 10th anniversary of becoming a Unitarian Universalist. As some of you know, before UUCF, I was the pastor of two different uh, progressive Christian congregations for a total of nine years. And if the circumstances had been slightly different, it's possible I could have spent the rest of my career quite happily in progressive Christian circles. And it may be helpful for me to share a little bit more about why that is with you on this Easter Sunday as a way of speaking about the continuing meaning that the Christian tradition can have today. Too often, theologically conservative voices are the, the loudest voices in the room. As a result, we've seen that at some of our, our Board of Ed meetings recently, right? As a result, the word Christian is too often associated almost exclusively with being hypocritical, being judgmental, aggressively trying to convert others, being anti-science, being anti-LGBTQ. And if that's all the Christian tradition had to offer, I would have left a long time ago and not looked back. You know, just kick the dust off your feet, right? Off your sandals, as it were. I was raised Southern Baptist in South Carolina, but by middle school, I was increasingly questioning the disconnect between how, at least in my view, Southern Baptists often spend a whole lot of time praising Jesus, praising Christ, but very little time doing the radically transgressive acts of love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy that Jesus did. Here's the thing. They told me to read the Bible, and I did. And that's where the trouble started. <laughs> so much can open up from reading what the Bible actually says, not just what people like, you know, this is what the Bible says, but they're not actually showing you where it says that. And you may be like, I don't think that means what you think it means. You know, it's, uh, and, and the, it gets yet more interesting the more you learn about the original contexts in which it was written. In college, as a double major in religion and philosophy, the volume for me was turned up considerably on my skepticism and my, my questions rapidly multiplied. Around that time, I began attending a congregation associated with the Alliance of Baptists. Now, some of you may have heard of them. I would actually be surprised. It's a small denomination. It's about 140 congregations nationwide, but they're really, really interesting folks. And their approach to the Christian tradition really resonates strongly with the fourth of our UU six sources. That's on the final page of your order of service if you want to see our six sources. The Jewish and Christian teachings which call us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's the fourth of our six sources. I want to invite you to hear just a part of the Alliance of Baptist Covenant, and it may give you a sense of why I hung out with these folks for almost a decade before coming to hang out with you for now almost a decade. They write, guided by the Spirit, and I think they mean that sometimes in that, that what we mean by spirit of life. As some of you have heard me say before in a way I don't have time to unpack right now, I, I think if there's any sense in which we are still Unitarians, we're actually not Unitarian to God the Father or God the Son. We're Unitarians to the Spirit, if anything. I think that's the piece that we're, uh, and a lot more to say about that. But so they say, guided by the Spirit, we commit ourselves to hold the earth sacred, and to practice creation justice, to cultivate relationships of mutual respect and accountability, to act to dismantle systems of white supremacy, patriarchy, and abusive power, 
to raise prophetic voices of liberation and justice, to work to eradicate poverty in all forms, to establish spaces of refuge and renewal for all those who are wounded, to listen to and follow voices that have been silenced, to break down barriers that divide us from each other and creation. We seek to live in joy, humility, gratitude, and welcoming the realm of God. The point here is not whether all of that language exactly works for you. You know, some of you are going to be like, creation, I don't know, realm of God, not sure about that. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is that there's so many points of connection and alignment with our UU work for justice. And if we had time, we could explore similarly progressive commitments in many mainline Christian denominations. The Disciples of Christ, the Episcopals, the Evangelical Lutherans, the um, Presbyterian Church in America, the United Church of Christ, uh, the United Methodist Church. Indeed, our most frequent partner in the work for social justice here in Frederick is the United Church of Christ. It's ERUCC downtown, 15 West Church Street with Barbara Kirscher Daniels, you know, an amazing colleague. And all of that is just barely scratching the surface of the depth and breadth of the Christian tradition, which has great beauty and great inspiration, as well as great ugliness and, and harm as well. It's all in there. So even as my heart breaks at the harm that so many people, very much including me, and I'm not going to go I get back and spend a long time talking about that, have received from the Christian tradition, you know, my heart breaks at that harm that has happened, uh, I'm also aware of how much benefit has also come throughout the centuries from open-minded, open-hearted followers of the way of Jesus. Because there can be such a wide spectrum of what Christianity looks like, let me say just a little more about the kind of deep structural differences that distinguish a more theologically liberal Christianity from a more orthodox, theologically conservative version. In particular, the historical Jesus scholar Marcus Borg has identified three significant paradigm shifts. So some of these may seem really right to you, or maybe, maybe not, but I, I think sometimes it helps to language them, to articulate them, and you can say, yeah, that's the difference. That's what's going on. So first, he talks about moving from relating to the Bible and various traditional theology as being handed down from on high by God. First of all, we know there is no up, you know, up for us is different from up for Australia, right? Like we know that that's just not our cosmology anymore. So from relating in the Bible and various theology being handed down from on high by God and therefore viewed as infallible, inerrant, immune to questioning from scientific discovery to seeing the Bible and all theological reflections as the work of imperfect human beings deeply shaped by their historical context. William James used to talk about this. You come to see the trail of the human serpent is all over the Bible and theology. Two, moving from interpreting the Bible literally, factually, binding on all people and places, to understanding the Bible's historical context and applying its lessons more metaphorically, uh, sacramentally, archetypally. And third, moving from a focus on individual salvation, you know, fire insurance, uh, individual in the next world, to building a better world for all people right here and now in this life on this earth, what our universalist forebears used to call loving the hell out of this world, right, instead of escaping a hell in the next world. I sometimes think of this as I was taught as a child to work out my salvation with fear, with trembling. Any of you, you know, that's that Paul through Kierkegaard, you know, working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I've come to see it as working out our salvation with hope and trust, and that feels so much better.
Uh, we'll do Earth Day next Sunday, and I sometimes, you know, I was taught as a kid, it's all about the new heaven and the new earth, and I've come to see, no, this is our paradise planet, and we are bleeping it up, right? This, right here, look outside, this is our paradise planet. It's an amazing, amazing planet. So we could summarize these paradigm shifts as moving from divine origins and authority to human response from literal, factual, to historical, metaphorical, um, archetypal, sacramental, from otherworldly to this life, right here and now. Progressive Christianity also tends to emphasize gender equity, LGBTQ plus rights, uh, and to value multi-faith dialogue grounded in the conviction that Christianity is only one among many possible legitimate ways of being spiritual in this world. If you're curious to learn more, I can make a very, very long reading list for you uh, about progressive Christianity, of what's been important to my journey. But if I had to say one book to start with, Marcus Borg's book, The Heart of Christianity, is a very accessible um, um, so that, that's where I would say to start. Or if you go to frederickuu.org slash uuchristians, if you can't find that link, email me. There's actually a list of 15 books. So if you want a slightly longer list, um, check that out. I want to shift gears soon to give you two more angles for making sense of Easter today. But first, I want to give you just one more example of how there are definitely times when I could say, God, I wish I could get some of that stuff in my childhood like out of my head. There are other times when having some of this Christian stuff like deep in my bones, it still serves me. And I want to give you an example of how that's true. Uh, whenever I hear discussions about forgiving student loan debt, which we should have done years ago, one of the most frequent objections is from those who have already repaid their debts. Now, I can empathize with that. I can easily empathize with that perspective, right? I did the right thing. You, you people you know, do the right thing, too. I get that. But I also can't help but think of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew 20, whenever I hear these debates about student debt forgiveness. Some of you are going to already know what I'm talking about. Other, for others of you, I'll retell it very briefly. Jesus says, the beloved community is like this. And we could actually spend a whole lot of time fruitfully taking all these places where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this and just substitute the words beloved community and think about how it applies to changing this world in radical ways. So you could spend a lot of time fruitfully doing that. I'm going to give you just one example. The beloved community is like this. An employer goes out at 6 a.m. to hire day laborers at the usual going rate. Still do this today, right? You can go out in Frederick, hire day laborers, right? All over the country, all over the world. Three hours later at 9 a.m., he goes back into town and notices, oh, you know, so at 6 a.m., like all the employers were out there and they took their, what they needed back. At 9 a.m., he goes back and says, oh, there's people standing around who haven't been hired. So he tells them, come and work for me. He takes another, you know, the equivalent of taking a truck, truck load home, right? Whether it was a cart or whatever back then. But instead of formally agreeing to the usual daily rate, he says, this time, I'll pay you whatever is right. Now, that might feel a little ambiguous, right? Like, what does that mean? But there's kind of this dynamic going on where uh, workers at this time, like, you, you worked for your daily bread. And if you, so it's probably better to work in, like, well, I'll just go and get something better than going home with your hands empty. But I think I could also see feeling like, is this guy's definition of what's right going to feel, you know, like what my definition, you know, Alistair McIntyre has that famous uh, book set titled, 
who's justice, which rationality, right? Like, who's at the table, who's on the menu? So as the story continues, the employer goes out again. He goes down again at noon, he goes out at 3 p.m., and each time he notices, God, there's still people standing around. So he keeps bringing them back and say, all right, just come back. Many hands make light work. And, I'll, uh, and at 5 p.m., he goes out a final time, and there's still workers standing around idle. They've just been standing there all day waiting to be given work. And so he hires them, too, even though the day's work is almost over. Notice this is like a 12-hour working day. You know, this, you know the whole 40-hour uh, work week, the labor movement from the people who brought you the weekend? You know, that's why we need the labor movement, because you used to have to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Finally, at sunset, he begins to pay them in reverse order from last hired to first hired. And here's the twist. The people hired at 5 p.m. are given the usual daily rate, and so too the people at 3 p.m. and noon and 9 a.m. And so those people, you know, way in the back that had been who had actually been working all day since 6 a.m. are like, wow, this person's so generous. How much more are we going to get, right? But when they get to the front of the line, they too receive the usual daily wage. Everyone gets the same. And they started grumbling. Why are we being paid the same as those who only worked one hour? We have been toiling for 12 hours in the hot sun. And the employer replied, friend, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily rate? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, this teaching can be quite difficult, even, even paradoxical. And if we had time, we could explore in, in depth. I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot of a fascinating precedent to this parable in uh, 1 Samuel 30 that mostly doesn't get talked about. It's where King David tells his troops that, quote, the share of one who goes down into the battle shall be the same as the share of one who stays with the baggage. They will share alike. So it was a similar situation where troops had gone into battle and they wanted to keep all the spoils for themselves because they had been on the front lines taking the risk. And uh, there's a, it seems like Jesus' parable of the generous employer may well have been inspired by this ancient human uh, Hebrew legend. And this is a, a one of many, many places where I would tell you, beware of those folks who like to stereotype that the New Testament is all, that the Christian scriptures are all about love and compassion and forgiveness, and the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is all about like judgment and you know harshness. There's a whole lot of judgment and harshness in the New Testament and a whole lot of love and forgiveness in the Hebrew Bible. It's all kind of mixed up in there, so beware of those kind of anti-Semitic tropes. If we take a step back from both of those stories, though, we can also read between the lines again that surely it was the youngest and the most able-bodied who were hired at 6 a.m. who were chosen to go into battle. So part of what these ancient Jewish and Christian stories are about is widening our circle of compassion so that everyone gets a basic minimum. Everyone gets at least their daily bread, which you've heard me talk about before, a stable floor for all, such that everyone has a basic minimum. Everyone has dignity. In addition, it's important to know, again, that this usual daily wage was a subsistence wage, so that anyone, again, who wasn't hired was going to go hungry that night. So we could reinterpret the story today as the parable of a living wage. Or we could take it further to be the parable of why we need a universal basic income. I've talked about this at length before. 
There are some powerful resources in these ancient scriptures that really can inform and equip us, even in these contemporary debates, about fairness and student loan forgiveness. Resentment, again, is one very natural and understandable human response to having student loans forgiven if you've already paid off most or all of your own. But can you also hear this ancient call to lean into celebrating generosity? To incline yourself to be excited about the possibility in which people aren't hampered long-term simply for seeking education? Can you hear that good news? On this Easter Sunday, it's pieces like this that continue to make me feel grateful uh, for the, the time I've spent immersed in the Christian tradition, for challenges that the beloved community is like this. This is how we get to the beloved community. Now, having spent some time exploring the progressive Christian tradition, there are just two other angles that I want to invite us to consider for making sense of Easter for today. Christian mysticism and Christian humanism. Let's start with mysticism. I felt compelled to bring this up uh, in the wake of the death of Thich Nhat Hanh a few months ago. I just felt like I had to say something about his relationship to Christianity. I'm actually going to say a lot more about it on Martin Luther, uh, the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr. I want to talk about the very profound relationship between Dr. King and between Thich Nhat Hanh. So I'm going to say more about that later. But in particular, so Thich Nhat Hanh was this uh, Vietnamese um, Buddhist monk and peace activist that some of you will know. Uh, and so his death made, prompted me to read a book that was really influential on me 25 years ago when it was first published, but that I haven't read since then. It's titled Living Buddha, Living Christ. Have any of you read it over the years? All right, I see a few hands. If you've read it in the chat, you can share with me there as well. So in 1997, when I first encountered it, I was a college freshman trying to find my way out of this. This is what theology felt like in my childhood. Very, very tight and constricted. And I was pretty immersed at that time in finding my way through different theological arguments and debates, which again, often felt like closed fists. Like I had closed fists, other people had closed fists, and you know, it was, uh. But reading Thich Nhat Hanh, it just felt like nothing I had encountered previously. His approach to the Christian tradition, I mean, it felt like this. It just felt like, it just felt so open-handed, so free, so liberated, just things that felt like they weighed on me. He just brushed off. His approach embodies that shift we explored earlier from this wooden, literal, factual to a metaphorical, a flowing, uh, an archetypal relationship with um, the Christian tradition. And I was so struck by people like the Roman Catholic monk uh, Thomas Merton, uh, the black Baptist preacher, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., saying things like, we feel like we have more in common with Thich Nhat Hanh than we do with most other American citizens and most other Christians. And Thich Nhat Hanh said the same. I feel like I have more inclined with, uh, you know, with Dr. King and with um, Father Louis, which was what Thomas Merton was known as, than I do with most other people in Vietnam and most other Buddhists. In regard to their respective religions, what they had in common was that shift from divine origins and authority to human response, from otherworldly to thisworldly. Han had what he called engaged Buddhism. It's not just, you know, go to the cave, that's fine, but then we've got to engage the world with the wisdom and compassion that we have existentially experienced through meditating. He also had a very UU approach to the world's religions. Han actively encouraged people to see the beauty and value of other religious traditions. And that's just not how I grew up. I grew up, you need to convert people to 
capital T, the one true way, right? Or they're going to go to hell. It's that whole Jonathan Edwards, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which I can see as God in the hands of angry sinners, right? Like, but Tignot Han invited us to just sidestep all that. He used to say that different religious, to hit, religious traditions to him, it's just like cooking. They're just different spiritual recipes. And he said, if you love French cooking, it doesn't mean you're forbidden to love Chinese cooking. You can love both. And they, get, they do different things, right? But you can, you can love both. Similar, he used to say, you can love the apple, but that doesn't stop you from loving the mango. If you're curious to learn more, another a really interesting recent book, and that I may talk, I thought I was going to talk more about uh, today, but I don't have time, uh, that kind of, in, and that I may do in a future Easter Sunday, that approaches the Christian tradition from kind of this mystical, non-dual uh, way. It's a book by Ajashanti uh, called Resurrecting Jesus. But as I move toward my conclusion, I want to end with one final piece for any of my, my humanists out there. It's written by uh, you know, a, a humanist uh, UU, one of my colleagues, the Reverend uh, Kendall Gibbons. It's titled, The Humanist Speaks of Easter. It's her attempt to discern the archetypal meaning that Easter can still hold for us here in the 21st century. Uh, this move from the, the shock of death on Good Friday through the, the silence of the tomb on Holy Saturday to the joy of Easter Sunday. Now, the truth is sometimes it takes a lot more than three days to make that move, but you know, she wants to talk about how that's archetypally resonant. And that it's really just not about believing. All these debates around, do you believe that this one thing happened in this, to this one person in this one time and place you know, 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday? She said, it's not about that. The invitation is to notice how these dynamics play out archetypally over and over again in the human condition and its encounter with the sacred. She writes, I just don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead because neither did Martin, neither did Malcolm, neither did Viola Liuza, one of our own, a Unitarian woman who was driving uh, marchers in 1965 with the Selma to Montgomery marches and was shot in a car. She's not gonna come back from the dead, nor will Frozen Safi, the woman's right activist shot by the Taliban in Afghanistan last November, neither will the journalist Jamal Kasagi or Alexei Navalny when he dies in a Russian prison. Neither will documentary filmmakers Brett Renald and photographer Maxim Levin, both killed by invading armies in Ukraine. They're not going to come back. She says, I don't believe that the crucifixion is a story with a happy ending or that it was a one-time event. It happens over and over as the human journey unfolds. It happens to us. It happens to those we love. It happens to the righteous, and it happens to the innocent. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Crucifixion happens, and it feels like the end of the world every time. Every time. It feels like nothing could matter anymore, ever. I remember when one of my friends uh, was really, really neurologically injured in college in a traffic accident. And just sitting in the cafeteria and looking around, and everyone else was going on like normal. And we were so devastated. I know you've all felt like that. I know you felt like that. But she says, and then. And this is what the everyday miracle of Easter can still mean. And then inevitably, miraculously, just something happens next. Something happens. Of course it does, because the world hasn't ended. 
even if it feels like it has. It's not always an empty tomb. How trite would that be? Mostly the beloved bodies, they just lie right there, peacefully decomposing. But something happens. Whether we want it or not, a new chapter begins. Maybe the sun comes up, or the lilies do. Spring rolls around, that happens. Or memories come. Or someone just needs you, and you go to help them. You eat food, that happens. You walk down the road and you share a recollection. Life just keeps happening. The dead don't rise, but we do. One day it happens. You take a breath and it just doesn't hurt so much to breathe anymore. We don't ever get over major losses, but we can learn to live with them, to, to tenderly integrate them. You start to see people again, to really see them and not just resent them because they're living their lives. Hope rises. Community rises. You rise. We rise. Life rises. Not because death isn't real, not because crucifixion is not just pretend, but something else is real, maybe even more real. Something happens next, and that's the, really the only thing we know for sure. And life rises, and outrage rises, and love rises, and faith rises, and tears rise, and hope rises, and all of that we can believe on this 21st century Easter morning. As you use, we believe in deeds, not creeds, and that it's behavior that is believable. So as we each individually and collectively seek to discern, how does Easter call to us this year? How are these ancient stories, how are they still resonating with you, challenging us? What dreams are you being called to turn into deeds? As we discern that, how these stories can still resonate, metaphorically, archetypally, sacramentally. Please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 276, O young and fearless prophet. <laughs>